are going to be in Joshua 18 this morning. And it starts out and it says, The whole assembly of the Israelites gathered at Shahon, or Shiloh, and set up a tent of meeting there. The country was brought under their control. So we've been talking about how the children of Israel have been slowly taking, um, taking control of the land, the area, uh, and uh, they've moved across the, the Jordan, and they first settled in a place called Gilgal, and that was seven years ago. Um, that was before all the fighting, before all the, you know, the battles, and they've slowly been battling and, and taking over the land, and they've conquered the land. They've had three major campaigns in the, in the middle of all this. They've had 31 battles or victories over seven years, and this has been good for them. It's been good for them to uh, do the things that God set up to do, for them to do, but they still needed to mop up. They still needed to uh, fully take the land, uh, as we talked about last week, of, of getting those in the land that shouldn't be in the land anymore out. Because if they don't, they'll have a major influence on Israel. And we've seen that over, over the years. And last week we talked about there's things in our lives that we have to get out of our lives. Uh, things that we need to take away. Uh, things that we need to fully get control of. Um, or we will just battle them year after year after year. And we talked a little bit about that last week. But now they're going to move their capital, uh, what we would call a capital. They would call their tabernacle, their, 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 uh, you know, the, the center of their worship and their life was the tabernacle. And they're going to move that. So they move, move uh, from Gilgal on the side of Israel to the middle of the country they conquered. And it goes on and says, um, but there was still seven Israelite tribes who had not yet received their inheritance. So Joshua said to the Israelites, how long will you wait before you began to take possession of the land that the Lord, the God of your ancestors, has given you? Appoint three men from each tribe. I will send them out to make a survey of the land and write a description of it according to the inheritance of each. They will return to you. You are to divide the land into seven parts. Judah is to remain in the territory on the south and the tribes of Joseph in their territory on the north. After you've written descriptions of the seven parts of the land, bring them here and I will cast lots in the presence of the Lord our God. So you have these seven tribes. They've been very successful, but now they've kind of settled into their everyday life. They've gotten used to their routine. And, you know, even, even in the midst of all the, the, the craziness of this past year, we've gone into certain routines. My family has a different routine than what we did a year ago with school and everything that was going on. It's just a different routine. Uh, you know, you settle in and that's what they've done. But they've also become a little bit of couch potatoes. They have the land, but they're not going to do anything with it. Maybe someday we'll get to it. We'll get to those things that God wants us to do. But right now, we're just kind of relaxing. The majority of the tribes are not doing their job. They're not doing the things that God asked them to do. So Joshua's a little frustrated with them, and Joshua just can't stand it. It's like, it's like they're all sitting around, and they have the TV remote in their hand, and, and Joshua storms through the house and says, You need to move out of my basement, you know? You love them, 
But you know they're not living up to their potential. They're not doing what God wants them to do. It's like an an object that has lost their momentum. It had an eternal uh, force to to move them. And you need that eternal force to to start moving them. And Joshua's eternal force is his sandal on the backside. You know, he's like kicking them out. He's like, you need to start moving here. And sometimes good, good leadership is a good swift kick up the backside. You know what I'm saying? Teachers understand this more than anybody else. And it causes somebody to move forward sometimes. One of the issues that Joshua has is that he's been the driving force all these years. These last seven years, he's been the leader. He's been the one doing it. And, you know, but God has changed things, and he's taken Joshua, and he said, you need to step out of that role. You need to get these other people moving. You need to get other people using their gifts, doing their job. And it's like Joshua is saying, you know, this is not how I raised you to be. I wonder how many parents have said that, you know. This is not how I raised you to be. And and you need to get things straight. So they send some guys out to survey the land. Some analytical guys, not warriors. Their gifts are, are along the lines of planning and looking at it going, oh, we could really, you know, this area, we could really do this in. And, and that area over there, it's different, but we could do that area, you know, do that kind of stuff. And, and their gifts are along those planning lines. So Joshua's motivating them to do what he did 45 years earlier or 47 years earlier. And this is, can, can kind of be fun for leaders to look around and say, you know, I once did that, and I want you to start doing. And, and when that person responds and starts doing it, you know, there's an excitement there. It's important for us to allow people to, to start different ministries and, and to move into different uh, roles and stuff and serving the Lord. So how do we apply this to our lives? Well, this kind of couples with last week's teachings that we talked about uh, finding our boundaries. Lord, what is my boundaries? Where, where am I supposed to be? Where do I build? What do I protect? The things in my life. How far should I go out? How, you know, should, I, should I not go over these boundaries? You know, I can go up to the edge, but don't go over that boundary. You know, where do you want me to be? So now the Lord's extending what he said to the, to the uh, Ephraimites and, the, uh, and the, Man- the tribe of Manassas, to all the tribes, go out there and plan what you should do with what I've given you, which he's really saying with what the Lord has given you. But it's always hard to start, especially if it's a big job. You kind of get overwhelmed. You're like... Where do, where do I start? You know, it's like when I tell my child to clean his room if he hasn't cleaned it in a while. It's like, where do you start? You just start right there. You do one thing at a time. And you start, and you start doing one thing at a time, and then you get that done, and you start doing one other thing. At a, you know, and, and you start to see things happen, and the room starts to clear out. It's the same thing with the land, especially, you know, that big job. Where do I start? But the overwhelmingness can you know, be our own worst enemy. And we will do anything except what we're supposed to be doing. We put it off, don't we? You know, my, my wife has a tendency to, to ask me to do something. I don't know why she does that, but ever so often she'll ask me to do something. The problem is my time frame of doing that and her time frame of doing that are two different things usually. You know what I'm saying? And then she ends up starting to do it. And I'm like, well, hon, I was going to do that. And she's like, yeah, but I asked you to do that two days ago. You know, 
Her time frame and my frame are different. Same thing with the Lord. Our time frames can be different, you know. And we will, we will do anything except what the Lord asks us to do. And one thing I've learned is this. Is the day you stop growing is the day you start to die. The day you stop growing in the Lord is the day you start to die. And you can live a long time while dying. And it can start at any age. Especially when it comes to the things the Lord wants you to be doing. Some of us have been told, you know, at different times in our life, the Lord wanted us to do something. And sometimes he won't give us another job until we've done it. And we put it off and we put it off. And then five years go by, 10 years go by, 20 years go by, 30 years go by. And we're like, God, why aren't you using me? And God's like, well, you stop doing the things that I ask you to do. He's like, you need to start following me, and then I will, I will start blessing you. Then I'll start using you in, in certain ways. You know, we, we, need to, we need to stop. Let me rephrase that. We need to start following the Lord. We need to stop doing the things that are of the world. So if we want to grow right now, eternally, with no lag time, we need to start doing the things of the Lord. I love the, uh, you know, one of my uh, grandfathers, at 88 years of age, I was up visiting with the family, and, and he was 88 years old, and he was all excited. And I'm like, I mean, he was like a, a kid in a candy store. And I'm like, well, what are you all excited about? He goes, oh, I got my new commentaries in. I'm fixing to start teaching another uh, Sunday school. And, and so many things have changed in the, in the world of archaeology and, and all the stuff they're finding over in Israel. I needed a new set so I could be up to date on teaching things of God. And that's what we need to, we need to go, God, where are you going to use me? It never stops. Our roles will change. The things we do will change. But we want to always be encouraging the next generation to follow the Lord. I want the day that I give up following the Lord being the day that I die. And then I won't really be give up following the Lord. I'll just transition to being with him. You know, Moses wrote in Psalms 90, and I read part of Psalms 90 earlier but, but he, uh, for communion. But he said at one point, teach me, O Lord, to number my days. Think about that for a second. What if you knew the number of your days? What would you do? Well, you'd start planning things out, right? Well, this day I want to do this. By this day I want to be doing that. By this day I want to be doing this. Why did he write this? To know that it would be over with? No, no, not at all. To be able to look back and, and categorize his, his life, to, to know the days that he's wasted or to remind him not to waste any more days. How many days have we wasted in our life? Now, the Lord wants us to relax, okay? Don't, don't get me wrong. He, he, you know, there are days when we rest. But also, how many days have we just put off stuff? Well, the Lord goes on and says in... My thing is not... Okay, put it on. I'm going to let you do it because for some reason it's not communicating. I don't know why. It happens more often than not, Right? He goes on and says in verse 9, So the men left and went through the land. They wrote its descriptions on a scroll, town by town, in seven parts, and returned to Joshua in the camp of Shiloh. What's amazing to me is this. 
The verse right here shows us the level of education the Israelites had. I mean, they had people who would go out and survey the lands. And to survey something, you have to be literate. Even 200 to 300 years ago, or 200 years ago, America wasn't like this. You know, there was a lot of uneducated people in America, you know, out there in the, in the Wild West, as we called it, and so forth. Uh, but, but Israelites, don't think of them as, as cavemen. These are very sharp people. I mean, they come back with a whole, you know, a whole book of things. Okay, in this part we can do this, that part we can do that. So in chapter 18 and 19, we see the assignments of the land. It's, it's not really exci- exciting reading for us, so I'm not going to go over it. Uh, over all of it, but for them it is. I mean, these are their titles. These are the deeds of the land. They're, they're dividing it up. And even all the way to the New Testament, you could ask a Jew, what tribe are you from? And they could tell you, oh, I'm from this tribe and we're from this part of the land and this is who we are. And if you have that kind of history, you understand what I'm saying. But we jump to chapter 19 verse 49. It's a beautiful picture here for them. It says, uh, when they finished dividing the land into its allotted portions, and we talked about the, you know, the God giving them boundaries last time, the Israelites gave Joshua, son of Nun, inheritance among them. This is really cool. Being a part of the tribe of Ephraim, Joshua would have received some land. But here, they go above and beyond. And Joshua, uh, you know, they're like saying, we, we want to bless you for how you've led us. In verse 50, it says, as the Lord commanded, uh, they gave him the town he asked for. And this is a beautiful uh, thing that we see in scriptures ever so often where the Lord says, what do you want? You know, as a father, you get that, you know, a father and a mother, you, you get that every so often. You just tell your kid, well, what do you want? You know, and, and they get all excited. You, you mean I can choose? And they get that excitement there. And this is what they're doing for Joshua. What do you want? You've gone above and beyond. And, and the Lord says, you know, the next thing that comes out of his mouth is, is what he wants. And, and we, we see this in different scriptures. We see this with Solomon. Wouldn't you love uh, if, the, if the Lord treated uh, you like this or everyone like this? Well, we would love it except for if somebody else wanted the thing that we had. You know what I'm saying? God doesn't treat everybody like this. And there's a reason. This is really special for Joshua. And, and really good that he, that he doesn't just ask us the question because... The question is for somebody who really knows the Lord. The Lord is connected with Joshua in a beautiful way, and he wants to bless him in a beautiful way. There's a maturity in Joshua at this point. Because if you ask a 4-year-old what they want, and a 40-year-old what they want, and an 80-year-old what they want, those are going to be three different answers, right? There's a maturity to Joshua at this point. Most of us don't operate this way, but what is amazing to me is what Joshua chose. He chose Timnath Sarah in the hill country Ephraim, and he built up a town and settled there. He could have picked any portion of the kingdom. You know, it's almost like a king says, what do you want, even up to half the kingdom? You know, he could have picked anything. And Joshua shows his true character here. Uh, You know, Timnath Sarah is is not a, a great, wonderful place. It's not a desirable place. But he took it and built his own city there. 
you know, what kind of city do you want, Joshua? You want Jericho or Hazor or, or you want over there by Galilee, you know, by the, uh, by the Sea of Galilee or uh, Megiddo or, you know, a beautiful area? No, nope. what I really want to uh, Timnath Sarah, you know, that's the area. And they're thinking, man, this, this old man has gone over the edge. Why would he want that area? It's not even conquered yet. And you know what he was saying? My time is not up yet. I know the Lord told me I cannot be in charge of the whole army, but I can be in charge of this town. I can be in charge of this area. That's what I want because I'm not done battling yet. I'm not done serving the Lord yet. I want to stay, uh, to stay busy. In other words, he's not being put out to pasture. He conquered and he built. You know, this had to be somewhat disappointing for Israel uh, later on, they would call out for a king and, and a palace, and they would do all these things, uh, you know, something they could point toward and say, that's our king. And Joshua goes, but that's not me. I just want this little town. I just want this little hill country area. You're not going to build, you know, a thing for me. But in chapter 20, it goes on. It says, the Lord said to Joshua, tell the Israelites to designate, uh, designate the cities of refuge as I instructed you through Moses. So that anyone who kills a person accidentally and unintentionally may flee there and find protection from the avenger of blood. When they flee to one of these cities, they are to stand in the entrance of the city gate and state their case before the elders of that city. Then the elders are to admit the fugitive into the city and provide a place to live among them. If the avenger of blood comes in pursuit, the elders must not surrender the fugitive because, if, uh, because the fugitive killed their neighbor unintentionally and without malice aforethought. Verse 6, it says, they, they're to stay in the city until the, they have stood trial before the assembly and until the death of the high priest uh, is serving at that time. Then they may go back to their own home in the town from which they fled. So what is the Lord doing here? The Lord is setting up something in Israel that he has been talking about since the book of Exodus. And, uh, and you will see the, the whole city of refuge thing in the book of Exodus and Leviticus and, and the book of Numbers. It was God, uh, God's plan to do all this, this way back when they were coming out of Egypt. Moses writes about it in Deuteronomy chapter 9. Now, what is the city of refuge? Well, the city of refuge is what, what the, you know, the heart of God is all about. The heart of God to delineate between premeditated murder and accidental murder, okay? And the Lord is revealing something that, that is very different than anything else that has ever been worshipped. And, and this is a God who has mercy. Those of you who study uh, history would, would love this. I love history. I love these type of things and, and development of humankind and, and, and so forth. But, but up to this point in history, there have been no laws like this. No civilization has, you know, have done the city of refuge. What they've basically done is eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. You know what I'm saying? Some cultures still practice this today. Some families practice this today. You do something against my family, man, the whole family will come after you. You know what I'm saying? It's that eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, that vengeance. If you kill a, a member of your family, then the patriarch, basically what would happen for many families at this point is if somebody was killed, somebody would come to my family, and then I would choose somebody out of my extended family, basically who would die. Okay, we'll take that person. 
You know, that's how it was done. And the patriarch of the family would choose that. We see that in some Middle Eastern cultures right now still. It's a savagery to it. Now, what the Lord is, is saying here is, I am still a law of justice. I, you know, I, I want you to make a government uh, not only based on facts, but out of motivation. Therefore, even our American government, uh, government is affected by the book of Joshua. Not that we have cities of refuge, but we have laws on the book who, who say, you know, is this intentional or unintentional, this action that, that, that we're trying, you know, somebody's arrested, okay, did they do it on purpose or did they not? And different things that delineate that. Not just something that happened, but why it happened. So he is saying, send these men to these cities if this happens. And I will give the the men of the city, the leaders of the city, wisdom to discern the truth to what happened so we can protect people when needed. So verse 7, it goes on, it says, So they set apart Kadesh in Galilee in the hill country of Naphtali, Shechem in the hill country of Ephraim, Kirith Arba, that is Hebron, in the hill country of Judah. And in verse 8, he sets up other cities also. And these six cities, where you could, if you could get there, were all within one day's run. Okay? <laughs> Which is good. So if I accidentally, you know, drop a, uh, an axe on, on uh, Bob's head over here, and he dies, sorry, Bob, you're dead, you know, if that happened... And, you know, his family is very upset about this, and rightly so. I had one day's worth of time to get out of the area and run to a city of refuge. Now, what we know from reading Deuteronomy 9 and Leviticus and Numbers, there's a little bit more to all this. One, it offered protection to these cities. The the roads that came to these cities were well-maintained, so it was easy to get to. You know, so the Caltran budget was full of money, you know. Uh, you didn't have projects like the, the train to nowhere. But that's a whole other thing, you know. But they had clearly marked signs, literally, toward these cities to tell you where these cities of refuge were. It showed them the way, much like hospital signs that we have on the freeways today. So if someone was running, they didn't have to stop and ask for directions. They could read the sign and keep going. So all over the place, you would have the sign, refuge, 10 miles away, refuge, 5 miles away, refuge, you know. So it could tell you, however, you know, however far you were. Also, the city gates of these cities were never locked except for during a time of war. That was important. And then fifth, they had plenty of food and water and a place to stay all for free for them while they were fleeing. Now, you might remember King David. He fled from the law for over 10 years for things that he, he never did. He was accused by, by Saul, uh, King Saul, of all sorts of things. And Saul was going crazy. And Samuel had anointed David to be the next king. But David was running from Saul. And he would have seen these signs, but he ignored these signs. Why? Well, who was controlling those cities? Saul was. He's like, I'm not going anywhere near those. Because we know that Saul would have broken the law to get to David. So David found refuge out in the desert in the caves. 
around in Gedi and Qumran and stuff and, and uh, near Masada. It's a beautiful, it's kind of a deserty area, but, but a, a beautiful area at the same time. And some of these caves could hold hundreds of men. In fact, David hid at one point with 300 uh, men and their families in some of these caves. So you can imagine how big that would be. So for 10 years, he ran from Saul. And during those times, uh, one of those times, he wrote Psalms 46. You have been my refuge, O God. He took the whole refuge concept, a whole new concept, a whole new level, and the level that, that even the laws that you've set up do not protect me, but you, God, you have become my refuge. God is still there. The Lord is still there. Nowhere can I flee from you, but I can flee to you. And you can protect me and feed me and take care of me. You know, there's some of us that need this type of protection. And I don't necessarily mean talking about physical protection or whatever, but we need to run to the Lord for protection during our times of need. Now, sometimes it won't take away the consequences of whatever actions that got us there. But he will protect us from undue justice. The psalmist doesn't say, God will provide refuge sometimes or somehow. It says, God is our refuge. His nature is to be, uh, to be a city of refuge. Now, the, the writer in, in, um, in the New Testament takes it even further. Further, The writer of Hebrews, especially in, in Hebrews 6, the writer refers to us, and this is all of us, as if in, we're, we're in need of a city of refuge. If we're running, as we're running from an accuser, and who's our accuser? Satan. He's our accuser. He uses all sorts of things. I, I, you know, I, I see uh, in all the stuff that's going on right now, I can see how quickly the world can be clamped down on. You know what I'm saying? Over this past year, could you imagine people saying you cannot, I mean, in, in Berkeley this last week, uh, they've had uh, one week and they've extended it for one more week where they've told the, the students, the only time you can come out of your dorm room is to go to the cafeteria to get your food and eat and then go back to your dorm room. You cannot leave for any other reason. If you do, you'll be kicked out of school. Now, last time I checked, we still lived in America, right? Could you imagine a year ago, Berkeley, the, 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 you know, the city of, of um, free speech, the city of you know, all those things that happened in the 60s, you know, the civil rights movements, them saying, no, you have to stay in your dorm room? You couldn't imagine that. You can see how Satan could easily use this stuff toward the end times, okay? And, and I'm not trying to paint Berkeley as being the evil one or Satan or anything like that. I'm just saying you can see how the world can clamp down so easily and you can see what will happen in the end times. We have an accuser and he's trying to destroy us. He's right on our tail, and, in, and out of our own strength, we, we turn around and we try to fight it off, and we find out that's a waste of time. We can't do it. Then we get to a bridge, and we find out that bridge is burnt down, and then we realize, man, that's the bridge that I burned down last time when I left that area. You know how we burn bridges sometimes? <laughs> because we make huge messes. The writer of Hebrews starts to use a word 
we think is really cool when David does this. And, and, and the writer of Hebrews takes it, and he does it also in Hebrews 6. And he says in verse 18, he says, That by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled to take hold of the hope set before us may greatly or may be greatly encouraged. And this is a picture for us. We are in a sinful state. Have you noticed that? <laughs> We're in a sinful state. The Holy Spirit says to us, if you don't straighten up, Alan, there is an accuser who will chase you down and he will destroy you. But I am still ahead of him. And we are so funny at this, you know. We're running around in circles and circles and circles and God's going, come over to the city of refuge, come to me. And we're still out there running in circles with the accuser right behind us, like we can trick the accuser. And it says, we who have fled to take hold of the hope that's set before us. Man, those are some strong verbs there. To lay hold of or to grab to, to not let go of. We are to lay hold of the hope, grab it, and, and just hang on. This is a hope that's set before us. And we're being drawn into it. It goes on and says in verse 19, We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where our forerunner, Jesus, has entered on our behalf. He has become a high priest forever. And this is so cool for us because the writer of Hebrews just takes us right into that application. He just lays it right out for us. You know what, guys? It is not just the city of refuge because our city of refuge is God himself. It is so much more beyond that. This is a holy place. You can enter into that holy of holies. They, you know, we, they used to be separated from God by this huge curtain. And that curtain was torn from the top to the bottom when Christ died. He, he no long, we no longer have that separation between us and God because of Christ. We can run right in. This is like when the kids run right into the office when dad is, has a meeting. But, but because the, uh, you know, it's his own child, he doesn't necessarily get mad. He may be irritated about it, but he's not mad because the child has come into him. We can run right in to God. Because this hope is an anchor for our soul. This is a wonderful picture of, you know, our, like we're lashing ourselves to Jesus. We're tying ourselves to Jesus. We got the, you know, the, the tie downs and we're cranking it down. And we're like, I'm staying right here. I'm connecting myself to Jesus, who is our anchor. What, what is really cool is this. In Joshua's, in Joshua's time, when the high priest died, you got to go back to your hometown. You could take a chance and leave the city of refuge and go back to your, uh, you know, go back to your town. But our high priest died, but he rose again. He didn't stay dead. We flee to the city of refuge. We've ran like crazy and come to find out it was a quick journey. And we've ran right to the city fathers and head straight for the high priest who is Jesus in the very presence of God, which is so important, the very hope of God. And we say, will you save me? 
Will you be my refuge? This is a picture of salvation when we go to God. And so many of us, this is an exact picture of how Jesus saved us when we realized that we needed it. We realized that there was more to God than just coming in worship. That we go to his feet and say, you are my salvation. You are the way for me to follow. And we give our lives to him. Everybody has come to God as an individual. And you don't get there because of what mom believed. You don't get there because what grandma or granddad believed or what dad believed. You get there because you realize that you needed hope in your life. He is our city of refuge. And that hope rests in Jesus Christ that we lay hold of, we lash ourselves to, we tie ourselves to, we grab a hold of it, and we don't let go. Last week, it was about setting our boundaries. This week, it's about, okay, now that we have our boundaries, what does God want us to do? And we also hold on to him as we do it. We do not let go. Because when we let go, what happens? It turns into a mess, doesn't it? We start making our own decisions. We go down our own path, and all of a sudden, we're like, how did I get here? And God's like going, you, I'm way over here. Come back. Come back and follow my footsteps. We were in the snow up in Yosemite, and, and uh, uh, they, they had it. We were up at the 7,000-foot level up at Badger Pass, and, and overnight they had like 12 to 18 inches of snow, okay? And, and you already had snow up there. So as we're walking in the snow play area, ever so often you would step, and all of a sudden you would go way down because one leg would just sink in that snow, right? So the kids, we kept telling the kids, walk in my path. And they get off the path. And what happens? They sink. We're like, no, no, no. Come back to my path. And that's what God does for us. He's going, Alan, you're going to sink over there in that snow. It's going to be hard for you to keep walking. You need to come back to my path. If you're on my path, things work out better. You can go further. You can go have your snow play day because you're not trudging through that thick snow. It's hilarious when we do this. And we're over there fighting, trying to get out of the snow. And he's like, how many times I got to tell you? Walk on the path, Alan. I sound like a parent, don't I? Come on, boys, walk on the path. No, no, don't go over there. Get on the path. Then come up here, get on the tube, and I'll shove you down the hill, and we'll keep doing it. You'll have a little bit of fun in life. And God's saying, come back to my path. You're going to have some fun in my life when I'm pushing you around, when I'm in control. That's an amazing thing about God. He wants us to have fun in this life. And we can have wonderful fun in his footsteps. We need to not forget about that. Well, let's pray as Joshua comes back up and leads us in one last song. Lord, I pray that as we get off your path, that you signal to us, you holler to us, you, you, you encourage us to get back on the right path. Many of us have strayed over this past year, Lord. We've allowed the, the world to direct us. We've allowed to, to get into a new pattern, or, and we've relaxed away from church, Lord. And I pray that you bring us back to that path. Bring us back to your word. Bring us back into to your fellowship with other believers. That we may have support and grace and mercy. That we may have the love and, and, the, and, and just the encouragement that we need from each other. Lord, I thank you for saving us. I thank you for being our city of refuge. For being there when we need it.
And Lord, for those that need it, I pray they see you as a beacon of light. That they may run to you as a city of refuge. Now the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord's face shine down upon you. And may you find refuge in him. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.